Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word would, would be drilled down into our hearts and that it would affect the obedience. So we pray for light first, and then we pray for heat. We pray for love and zeal to obey Jesus Christ, our King and our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. In verse 37, we get the introduction to this whole final section of uh, Luke chapter 11. The setting is Jesus really going toe-to-toe and head-to-head against the religious elite of his day. He's going to take on the Pharisees and the scribes in this section. And what happens is that a Pharisee invites him to lunch. And you have to know it's not just one Pharisee. There's a group of people there because in verse 45, there's a lawyer. It says, one of the lawyers said to him in reply. So there's a group of lawyers, and I imagine there's a group of Pharisees. Now, why do you suppose that this Pharisee asked Jesus over for lunch? Was it just that he decided he wanted to get to know Jesus a little bit better? I don't think so. If he was sincere about wanting to know truth, I think he would have asked Jesus privately if he would come like Nicodemus, meet with him one-on-one -on -one by himself and ask him to explain the way of God more accurately. He doesn't do that. He invites Jesus to this luncheon where there's all these other religious people. And we know in verse 53 and 54 that once Jesus has had his way at this luncheon, they're plotting against him to catch him in something that he might say. So it's my sneaking suspicion and I don't think it takes a lot reading through the lines, between the lines here. This guy was trying to catch Jesus in something. These lawyers were there not as friends, but as enemies. They're trying to find something wrong with him. And they will eventually find what they think is wrong with him enough to kill him and put him on the cross. Now, we have to understand a couple of things before we get into this. We have to understand what a Pharisee is. We have to understand what a lawyer is. Okay. A Pharisee was one of those persons in a sect of Judaism that was the very, the, they were the most serious and uh, the most zealous for the law of all the Jews in the time of Jesus. They were very serious about keeping God's law. And so they called themselves separated ones. That's what Pharisee means. They looked at themselves as separated. They weren't like the riff and the rabble of the tax collectors and prostitutes and the, the people of the land. They were different. They kept the law. They were the separated ones. There was about 6,000 of them in Jesus' day. Now the lawyers, when we look at that word lawyer, we think of lawyers today. Someone who represents you in a court of law. That's not who they are. That's, and they didn't do that. These are experts in Jewish law. These are the ones that made up rules and regulations to make sure the people of Israel kept God's law. So the lawyers made the rules and the Pharisees kept them. That's how the game was played. <laughs> so these experts in the law, oh, there's a Sabbath law. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. So then the experts in the law, the lawyers, would come up with all these various rules and regulations of things you could or could not do on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees, wanting to appear righteous before men, would do everything they could to keep all those rules and regulations. See, the lawyers would create these rules that were like a fence around God's law. It wasn't God's law itself, but it was a fence around it so that if you had a rule outside here at the fence and someone didn't break that rule, then they'd never get through the fence to break the real law of God. So that's who we're talking about, the, the Pharisees, the separated ones, and the experts in God's law. 
In this section, Jesus levels six different woes against these people. There are three woes against the Pharisees, and there's three woes against the lawyers. And if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, what's a woe? <laughs> I've never heard anyone in casual conversation say, woe to you, Brian. It, it just doesn't happen. So I looked it up on dictionary.com to find out what a woe was. A woe is an interjection of grief, distress, or lamentation. So if something really bad is about to happen to somebody, you would pronounce a woe. Woe upon you. Um, in fact, the New Living Translation, instead of pronouncing this word woe, it, pronounces, it, it translates it this way. What sorrow awaits you? Like verse 46. What sorrow awaits you, lawyers, as well? So Jesus knew that great sorrow was awaiting these Pharisees and these lawyers. And he said it six times. There's a great sorrow that's awaiting you. So what did he mean? What sorrow was about to come upon these Pharisees and these lawyers? We can't really tell from Luke 11, but Matthew 23 is a parallel passage that's going to help us a lot to unlock this. So let's go over there for just a minute. To Matthew 23. And we'll start in verse 14. Matthew 23, 14. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive, what? Greater condemnation. Okay, keep that in mind. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. They're going to receive greater condemnation. They are right now a son of hell, and they're making other sons of hell. Okay? Look over at verse 33. <clears throat> you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Verse 35. I'll break in the middle of the sentence. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, who was the first martyr in the Bible, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. He was the last martyr of the Old Testament. So Abel to Zechariah, A to Z, all the prophets that they had killed. He's saying, you, this generation, is going to be charged with and guilty of all their blood. So just think of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 23. He's saying they're under greater condemnation. They're sons of hell. They are going to receive the sentence of hell, and they're going to be guilty of all the murders of all the righteous men from the first martyr until the last Old Testament martyr. So when he says, what sorrow awaits you, do you, do you get what he's talking about now? Hell is coming. Now, he's talking to the most religious people in his day, and he's saying, you're headed for hell. You're headed for eternal destruction and damnation. Great sorrow awaits you. Now, if they could have just humbled themselves and said, you know, I guess you're, you, are, you are right. The things you're saying, we don't like to admit it, but we have to admit it. You are right, Jesus. We repent. Everything would have been great. 
But they hardened their heart, they stiffened their neck, and they persisted in their own self-righteousness. And most of them, at least, did end up in hell. It says in Acts chapter 6 that a great number of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith, which gives us hope. So some of these religious people there did convert, and eventually they did become Christians. But most of them did not. Now, as we move our way through this passage, we're going to look at five sins that these religious hypocrites were guilty of. I called this message the damning sins of religious hypocrites. And you might think, well, what in the world does this have anything to do with me? Because I'm not a religious hypocrite. I'm not a scribe. I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not an expert in the law. But as I've worked my way through these five sins, I've seen myself commit these sins. And I have a sneaking suspicion, and you probably can see yourself at various times in your life committing the same sins that they did. And so we need to be reminded of them, and we need to turn from them if that is something that is a temptation for us. The first one is that they were inwardly corrupt. They were outwardly very clean and pure, but inwardly they were corrupt. Look at verse 38. When the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the, of the platter, <clears throat> but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within his charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now notice in verse 38, this Pharisee was kind of shocked and amazed. He was surprised that Jesus hadn't ceremonially washed his hands. Now we think, what in the world's going on here? This isn't like your mom telling you when you're seven years old, go wash up, we're having dinner now. It wasn't for personal hygiene. It was a ritual that they would go through. And they would actually pour this water over the tips of the fingers, down the hands, and they would do this before their meals, not because their hands were dirty, but because they, it was their way of appearing to be righteous and holy. Now there's nothing in the Old Testament about this washing of hands. This was one of those things that the lawyers, the experts in the law, had come up with along the way. And it made the Pharisees feel really separated, you know, they're the separate ones from all the others, because other people didn't do this, but the Pharisees did it. They washed their hands, and so they could feel smug and superior to other people who didn't go through this ritual. And they're actually feeling smug and superior to Jesus now, because Jesus doesn't follow their rule. Now, do you know why Jesus, he, he attended their luncheon when they invited him, but he didn't go through this hand-washing ceremony. Do you know why he wouldn't do that? wasn't God's law, so there's no reason really to do it. And if he did it, he's going to perpetuate this myth that you're somehow more holy if you go through this silly ritual, man-made ritual. And it might be like giving his stamp of approval on it. Yeah, that's true. So Jesus, he would go to this luncheon because he had a, a God, the Father had a reason for him there. The Father wants him to speak truth into their lives. There were a few Pharisees that did repent. Nicodemus was one. Joseph of Arimathea was another. Jesus is speaking the truth to them, and some of them 
a minority will receive what he has to say. So he's there on a mission of his father. But he's not about to go through this silly man-made ritual that has no ritualistic cleansing effect. And then he begins to express this with him in verse 39 to 41. He's saying, you Pharisees, you're really good at appearing nice and clean on the outside. You clean up the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you're full of robbery and wickedness. It makes me think of a little boy, maybe he's five or six years old, and his mom has made spaghetti, and there's a pot on the stove, and he thinks, I'm going to play a trick on my mom. So he grabs that pot that has all this tomato sauce and stuff stuck to the side of the pot, and he takes it, and he says, I'm going to hide it from mom, and she won't ever know where I put it. So he sticks it under his bed, and then he forgets all about the fact that this pot is under his bed, until one day he's looking for some socks, and he looks under there, oh, look, there's that pot I put down there, and he pulls it out. What's in the pot by now? <laughs> Mold and bacteria, some ants, some insects crawling all over. So he takes his pot, and he starts scrubbing all the outside of it until the outside gleams and glistens really shiny. He says, Mom, look, I cleaned up the pot for you. That's what these Pharisees were doing in front of Jesus. They're cleaning up their outside, but they were so gross and filthy and ugly on the inside, and Jesus is confronting them on that. You see, they were good at the external form of religion, but when it came to the heart, their motives for why they did what they did, we're going to find that their motives were completely off. It was all about them. It wasn't about God, really. It was about them. So Jesus confronts them. You're really good at cleaning up the outside, but you're inwardly corrupt. Now he says, in verse 41, here's the answer to you, but give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. He says in verse 39, you're full of robbery and wickedness. Now think about those words, robbery. You're full of robbery and wickedness. Over in Matthew 23, he says, you devour widows' houses. You remember that? These Pharisees devoured widows' houses. I'm not sure exactly how this worked, but they must have used their influence as their reputation as righteous, holy men to somehow take advantage of widows and take what belonged to them and take it unto themselves. So Jesus is saying, okay, you want to be clean on the inside? Give that which is within as charity. Charity is giving back to the poor. It's not taking from the poor, it's giving to the poor. Those who are disenfranchised, like widows and orphans, give that which is within is charity to them. And then he says, and then all things are clean for you. Then you're going to be clean on the inside and the outside. But as it is right now, you're wicked on the inside because you're taking advantage of helpless people who can't defend themselves. And then he gives an illustration of this in verse 42 about tithing. He says, you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. Now, tithing is in the Old Testament. That is an Old Testament law. But tithing little seeds from herbs, that's never in the Old Testament. God did tell them to tithe their, their wine, their grain, their oil, and their livestock. And they're actually to give three of these tithes. Uh, one was given to support the priests. One was given to put on the festivals that they enjoyed, and the other was given to the poor every three years. 
But they were going way over and above, way overboard what the law had ever prescribed to take out their seeds from their garden where they had their herbs and their mint. And they took those seeds and they laid them down on a counter and every tenth seed they set aside for God. Now why in the world would they do this? <laughs> to appear righteous before men, which is what they love to do. They wanted to show everybody we are super holy, ultra saints. We are way beyond you. We're way over in this level. And look at us. Look what we are going to do for God. It reminds me of that parable where you have the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they're up in the temple praying. And Jesus said that he was telling this parable because of some people who looked down on others with contempt, but wanted to appear righteous themselves. That was really the identity of, of a Pharisee. Jesus says to them, You do all this with your tithing, but yet you disregard justice and the love of God. So they were fixated on the minutiae, the things that really were unimportant, the, the things that God hadn't even required. They're fixated on doing those things, and they're totally neglecting the thing that was truly important, which was justice and the love of God. Now, think about those two th categories. Justice, that's love for our fellow man. Love of God, that's the love for our Creator. Well, Jesus did tell us at one point that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. Well, here we have neighbors. Some of them were orphans, some were widows, some were helpless. So justice would be pursuing what is right and fair for them rather than taking advantage of them. But he says, you're neglecting justice and you're neglecting the love of God. All of these things that you're doing, like counting out your seeds, you're not doing it for God. All of these things that you're doing to appear righteous on the outside, you're not doing it for God. Out of love for God, you're doing it for yourself. So the first thing he nails is that they were inwardly corrupt. So let's look at our own lives for just a minute here. Is this ever our sin? You know, we are good at Christians at appearing to others as clean. It doesn't take too long after you're converted to be able to clean up the drugs in your life and uh, getting, you know, getting loaded, getting drunk putting away the cigarettes maybe, um, you start going to church, <clears throat> quit cussing. So the big things, all you've cleaned those things up and when people look at your life, they think, oh, he's, he's a pretty clean looking, clean cut guy. Yeah, he must be a, a really good Christian. And so we'll go to church, we even learn how to read the Bible and pray. But you know, it's really easy to do all of those things apart from and not in reference to God. You can do all of those things for the wrong reason. You can do all of those things because you're concerned about what someone else thinks of you. That's why they were doing it. That's going to be the next thing we look at. The next sin is that they were seeking out the praise of man. That was their motivating force behind all of this. <clears throat> they disregarded justice. They disregarded the love of God. And we can do exactly the same thing. We can clean up our lives. We can do all these things, but yet we're neglecting our relationship with Christ at that very time. 
There's a, a passage in James that, that really speaks to this. It's in James chapter 4, verse 4. And he's speaking to people who had become infatuated with the world. He says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. So here, what James is saying is that if we give our hearts to the world, we're spiritual adulterers. It's just like if your husband or your wife went out and started cheating on you, committing adultery. God says, that's how I feel about you. You're spiritual adulterers because you've given your heart, which should have been given to me, you've set it upon the things of this world, the entertainments of the world, or the value system of the world. You're letting this world drive the way you live. And, and he says, you're adulterers. Don't you know that I'm hostile towards the world? The world's not my friend. And if you side with the world, I'm going to have to be hostile towards you. You're going to turn yourself into an enemy rather than being a friend. And he goes on to say, I'm a jealous God. Verse 5, <clears throat> I jealously desire the spirit which I've made to dwell in you. Now, it's not completely clear whether this spirit he's talking about is the Holy Spirit or our spirit. I tend to think it's our spirit. We have a spirit from God that should be devoted to him. But when we take that spirit and set it upon the things of the world instead of him, the Lord is jealous, and He does not like that, and the Lord will deal with His own children. He'll bring them back, and He'll wean them from those things that we set our hearts upon. So we need to be very careful that we don't get into this pattern of trying to appear holy before others, like the Pharisees did, but neglecting the heart relationship with Christ. Where is your heart today, honestly? Do you truly love God? Is that the reason you are, are seeking Him in terms of um, spending time in His Word or praying or going out and talking to people that don't know Christ or coming here and serving by taking care of the children or bringing food? Um, there's all kinds of things we can do to serve the Lord, but let's make sure that it's for the Lord that we're doing that, that it's not to appear a particular way before others. Okay, the second sin that we see here is they sought the praise of man. Back in Luke 11, verse 43 and 44. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Now, do you remember what the law was? about a Jew getting in close proximity to a corpse or a tomb or a grave, do you know what would happen? They became unclean. And they had to go through this elaborate ritual before they could become ceremonially clean again. Jesus says, Woe to you, you're like concealed tombs. The people walk over you and are unaware of it. What's he saying? You have a defiling influence on other people. You're contaminating them spiritually. Now the Pharisees thought they were having this awesome, holy influence on all the people of Israel. Jesus said, no, you're not. You're like a tomb. And they don't know they're walking over you, so they're getting defiled without even knowing it. 
Why were people becoming defiled and contaminated by looking at the example of Pharisees? Well, he tells us in verse 43, it's because they loved the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They loved the attention, the praise, the honor, the respect that came from their position as a Pharisee. <clears throat> Over in Matthew 23, that parallel passage, this is what Jesus says in verse 5. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. That's why they do them. If you're to go back to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about giving, praying, and fasting. And he tells his disciples, don't do your giving, your praying, and your fasting like the hypocrites. He says uh, in verse 2, When you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. That's why they were giving. He says in verse 5, When you pray... You're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. He says in, about fasting in verse 16, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance, so that they will be noticed by men. Do you see a pattern here? <laughs> Don't be like them. They want to be seen by men, noticed by men, honored by men. Everything they do is for the applause of man. And Jesus says, don't be like them. Watch out for that spirit. Don't let it start lurking within your heart and color all of your motives. Now that's tough for us because we can tend to be man-pleasers. Have you ever looked at the idea of being a man-pleaser as sin? It must be if Jesus warns his disciples not to do it. If we find the, the sin of man-pleasing or the fear of man welling up in our hearts, we need to identify that as sin, repent of it, and ask for God to cleanse that of, of our lives and to remove it from our lives. There's a passage I wanted to read to you from John chapter 12. John 12, verse 42 and 43. This is what the scripture says. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Now, why? He says in verse 43, For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. How often do we find ourselves doing things. We may not even know it's happening until we look back on it later and say, what really motivated me to do that? Was that for God and His glory? A lot of times, to be honest, we're going to say, no, it, that wasn't for God, that was for me. I wanted this person to think well of me. Or I didn't want that person to think bad of me. And when we do that, we're falling into the same trap that the Pharisees were in. We just talked about the various good works that we do. What motivates us to do them? Truly and honestly. I think if, if we're motivated by what someone's going to think of us, whether good or bad, I think the Lord would say, I, I hate that. I don't know. I don't care how good it looks on the outside. I hate it. 
because it doesn't come from a good heart. You're dirty on the inside. You might be clean on the outside, but you're filthy on the inside. You're like that pot with all these vermin crawling around in it. Make the pot clean. Get the motivation right. Repent of the fear of man or the praise of man and do it with a single eye to God's glory. So that's the second sin that we need to really think about. Psalm 19.14 says, um, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So that's what we, we need to go deeper than the external. We need to drill down, what, where's my heart in this action? Is this for God and His glory and His pleasure? Or is it for other people and what they're going to think about me? Okay, the third sin. They placed man-made burdens on others. Let's go back to Luke 11. And let's look at verses 45 and 46. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Jesus, stop it. You're insulting us, is really what they're saying. Now, did Jesus say, Oh, I'm sorry. I I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't know I was offending you. Yes, I'll, I'll just stop right now. In fact, I'll just leave because I, I know what I'm not wanted. He doesn't do that, does he? he? He goes right on and he keeps drilling down even further. And he starts going after these lawyers. But he said, woe to you lawyers as well. You're guilty just like the Pharisees. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Remember, the lawyers were the ones that came up with all the rules that the Pharisees tried to keep. Well, he says, you, you lawyers, you're weighing men down with these burdens, all these rules and regulations you're putting upon them. They're not even from me. They're not even from God. You're coming up with these things, and it's not helping them. You're crushing them. It's like putting this 300-pound barbell on their back. <laughs> you know, they're, they're pinned to the ground. They feel helpless. They, their joy is gone. The life is gone. These man-made burdens are just crushing the people. And so Jesus is confronting that. Now, they were really good with this. They were lawyers, <clears throat> and lawyers in every age are really good with loopholes. They'd come up with a bunch of loopholes for themselves. I'll just give you one example that I read about this week. One of their loopholes was that you couldn't tie a knot onto a bucket because that was work, but you could tie a knot in a girdle because that wasn't work. That, you had to wear something, and so that was acceptable. But you couldn't tie a knot onto a bucket. So these lawyers had come up with their loophole. If they wanted water from a well on the Sabbath day, they would, instead of getting a rope, they'd get a girdle, <laughs> tie it to the bucket, lower it down, get their water. Now, of course, the common Jewish person knew nothing about their loopholes. And so if they were thirsty, they would go without any water. But these lawyers, they'd come up with all these crazy things that they justified in their own mind. And really, they were just sinful because they're trying to go get around God's, God's truth. But So they're good at these loopholes, but they're placing this burden upon everybody else. Now, what about us? Do we ever place man-made rules and regulations upon other people that God hasn't placed upon us? We've been really good at this in the church, haven't we? We have 
certain days where we say you must fast or you must not eat meat on this day or you can only have fish on that day or we say that you cannot drink alcohol of any kind at any time. Um, we have rules and regulations on things like women must wear dresses rather than pants. They can't wear makeup. They've got to have long hair rather than cut hair. Men must have short hair to a certain length. There are certain churches where if you go and, and the man's hair is down to his collar, the deacons will take you aside and tell you that's not acceptable in this church. I mean, you, you can, you cannot play cards is one of the rules. You can't go to movies. We've got all these. Now, none of those things per se are regulated for us in scripture, right? There are certain things that God wants us <clears throat> out of our relationship to him and by the minister of the Spirit to determine whether that is something that would be good for me or bad for me. Is that going to hinder my walk with Jesus? Is it neutral? Or could it help my walk? And we're going to have to make our own decisions on some of these kinds of ideas. But for us as a church to start <laughs> making these rules and regulations and saying you've got to conform and fit into this pattern is, is sinful. We've fallen into the same trap of these lawyers here. So this is just another one that we need to be aware of. We need to be aware of it. And if we find this pattern in our life, we need to realize it, go, take it to the Lord, do business with God, and repent and say, okay, Lord, I was wrong. I, I don't have the right to impose a rule in this particular area. Number four, they seek to destroy those who confront them. This is verses 47 to 51. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who is killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. They were pretending to honor the righteous prophets of old by building tombs for them, by building monuments for them. If you read Matthew 23, you'll find that uh, in Matthew 23, he says they were building the monuments of these prophets. So they're outwardly pretending to honor the prophets, but Jesus is saying you're, you have the same spirit in you that your fathers did. Your fathers killed the prophets. You know what you're going to do? You're going to persecute and kill my prophets and apostles that I send to you. And they did. Jesus sent the eleven and the Apostle Paul out into the world to proclaim the gospel. And who are the ones that persecuted them? It was the religious leaders of the Jews, who were main, the main persecutors, at least originally. And they did. They persecuted them, and they killed them. The uh, Ten out of the eleven died, died martyrs' deaths. They were persecuted and killed. And of course, the greatest crime that they ever committed was not killing the prophets and apostles that Jesus sent, but it was killing Jesus himself. So they would prove that they were of the same spirit of their father, even though they tried to pretend that they were honoring the memory of these great prophets of old. And really what, what we need to learn from this is that when Jesus Christ confronted them with the truth about themselves, instead of humbly 
acknowledging it and repenting, they tried to kill him. In fact, they did kill him. If he was going to confront their sin, we're going to get rid of him. Whatever we have to do, we're going to get rid of this guy because we can't stand the way he puts his finger on our sins and exposes them in front of the world. So, this is a sin that we also can readily commit. I mean, think with me now. When, when somebody comes and confronts you about something that they think is wrong about you, how do you respond? I'm not real good at this myself, as my wife can attest. <laughs> Sometimes you might not, well, is this right or wrong, what the person's saying? And so maybe you need to get alone and you just need to think about it and talk to God about it. Lord, is this true what they're saying about me? And if, you, if the Lord says, yeah, yeah, there's some truth in that, we need to come back and we need to humbly say, yeah, you're right about this. Um, you're right, I'm sorry, or I apologize for whatever the issue happened to be. What, what, is it, what is it that is inside of us that naturally rises up when someone says, you know, this thing you're doing is not right? What is that about us? It's pride, isn't it? It proves that we're sons of Adam. We're sons of the fall. You know, there's a brother I know that I know that he struggles with this too, but at least outwardly, whenever I confront him, he's humble about it. And I think that that's really a mark of a godly person. If we can get to the point where we can be humble and just listen, take it to the Lord, ask the Lord, Lord, is that true? If it is, okay, well, then I'll deal with it, Father. That's, that's a mark that we're growing in godliness. And we make it the aim of our lives that we're not like the Pharisees who are stiff-necked and hard-hearted and wouldn't repent, but that have soft hearts. That we can hear the truth. We're willing to hear it. We're willing to confront the evil and sin in our life. In fact, if you have a good friend in your life, a really good question to ask them is, do you see anything in my life that I'm just not seeing that I really need to grow in? Or is there some sin that you're seeing in my life that I just don't see? Speaking of my life, you know, that, that's kind of a hard thing to do, isn't it? But it, that's a really good thing. If we could get to the point with somebody else where we're really asking that honestly, and then if they share with us, we're not devastated and crushed, we're saying, okay, well, you know, this, my friend, they've also got things in their life too. We all do, don't we? We've all got this bag of rocks we carry around because we're fallen sons of Adam. So there's the fourth sin. The fifth one, they were hindering others from entering God's kingdom. Look at verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. Woe to you, you've taken away the key of knowledge. And by taking away that key of knowledge, you were hindering other people from entering the kingdom. He says, you didn't enter the kingdom yourself, and you're hindering others from entering the kingdom. Now that's a terrible thing to tell somebody who spends their whole life trying to accurately teach people the Word of God. That they're hindering people from getting into the kingdom. But that was the case with the Pharisees. Now, he says you've taken away the key of knowledge. What was the key of knowledge that they took away? You ever thought about that? We're not told explicitly here, and I'll just tell you what I think it is. This is my best guess. I think the key of knowledge was Jesus Christ himself. 
Because the Bible doesn't make sense without Jesus. Let me, let me show you what I mean by that. If you go over to John chapter 5, and look at verse 39 and 40. John 5.39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. The Scriptures. Now what Scriptures was Jesus talking about when He made that statement? All of the Old Testament. So we're talking about books like Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Kings and Chronicles. He says all of the Old Testament, including the prophets, Psalms, all of that, <clears throat> testified about me. And he said, you're unwilling to come to me so that you might have life. That's why they didn't enter the kingdom. Jesus is the key. With that key, they can open up and enter into the kingdom, but they wouldn't come through Jesus because they had to humble themselves to go through Jesus, and they weren't about to do that. And so they, they took the key and threw it away so that other people couldn't find their way into the kingdom either. Look with me over at uh, Luke chapter 24. Okay, here we have Jesus speaking to two people on the day that he rose from the dead. They're walking to this town called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And I just want to point your attention to verse 27. It says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So again, he's giving them a Bible study on the Old Testament, showing them that he's the fulfillment and he's the key that makes sense of all the Old Testament. Or if you look at the same chapter, verse 46, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And if you go back to verse 44, he says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So that's the passage I wanted you to see. Verse 44 and 45. Everything written in the law of Moses. So that's the first five books. The prophets. So that's Isaiah all the way through Malachi. And the Psalms. The Psalms is all the wisdom literature. Basically, these are three categories of the Old Testament. Everything written in the Old Testament, ultimately, it's about Jesus. And it won't make any sense without Jesus. All of that stuff was leading up to Jesus. And these, these Pharisees and the lawyers had taken away that key, tossed it in the lake, and they said, good luck entering the kingdom. Follow my rules and my regulations and maybe you'll make it into the kingdom. <clears throat> so the leaders refused to come to Christ and they tried to hinder others from coming to Christ and without Jesus the Bible doesn't make sense. Try, try to study some doctrine in the Bible apart from its relationship to Jesus and see how far you can get with it. Any doctrine you want. You've got to look at every single truth in the Word of God in its relationship to the Son of God. Jesus makes all these things clear. And without Him, they, they're just dark, vague, uh, dim. So how would, that, how would that be our sin? Well, a couple of ways. Do we ever hinder others from entering the kingdom? 
Of course you say, I'd hope I'd never do that. I don't want to hinder anybody from entering the kingdom. But we can do that, can't we? By not representing Christ well. We misrepresent Jesus Christ and we give Christianity a bad name. And people look at all Christians as being hypocrites that don't really believe what they say they believe. So we can misrepresent Jesus Christ. And we can also make Christianity, just like what the Pharisees did, make it all about these rules. And we sort of eliminate Jesus from the whole perspective and we make it about, well, you don't smoke and you don't cuss and you don't drink and you go to church now and you read your Bible and you replace this bad habit with this thing. If we try to tell people that that's what Christianity is, we're hindering them from entering the kingdom because Christianity is about Christ. It's about Jesus. It's about relationship to Him. And as we have relationship to Him, then He directs us and He teaches us how we are to live in a way that's pleasing to Him. So let's, let's avoid the sins of the Pharisees and let's focus ourselves on Jesus and our relationship to Him and our love for Him and our desire to please Him and glorify Him and do all for His pleasure and glory. If we can do that, we will avoid these external outward sins of the Pharisees and God will be pleased with us. But if we focus on the external and we neglect the internal, we're going to slip into the same trap that they were in. And God's going to have to chastise us because He doesn't want us to stay there. He wants a different kind of people. People who are clean on the inside and it works its way on to the outside. So if you find yourself maybe trapped in one of these sins or guilty of one of these sins, take it to the Lord today. Thank God He is the Lamb whose blood takes away the sin of the world. Let's confess that sin. We'll receive cleansing, forgiveness, washing from that sin, and then the power of the Holy Spirit from this day forward to begin to react differently than we have up to this time. So Lord, I pray that You would give grace to Your people here today to, to truly hear this word is from You. We pray, Lord, that it would go deep into our hearts. Well, Lord, you would, you would speak to us and show us what area of our life that you would have us to apply the cleansing blood of Christ to and cry out for the power of the Spirit that we might be sanctified and truly made holy. In Jesus' name, amen.